it was a crazy year. We were all like really, really burnt out. So that was like a very, very scary moment. You can't succeed at this job if you don't challenge yourself to be better every day as a leader. Like you have to learn to manage yourself, lead yourself, manage your emotions, learn to compartmentalize because you have like very, very big highs and so many lows, so many lows. And then I learned from there on there that like, if you want to take your company to the next level, the biggest task is leading yourself, you know, learning new tools, getting mentors, coaches, and people that helps you to become a better leader. And the first person that you have to lead is yourself. You're listening to Aid Evolve, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to founders, people who built the social enterprises that are improving lives in Africa. Today, Tuesday, April 26th, Farmerline is announcing its raise of an investment of 6.5 million US dollars as part of its pre-series A fundraising round and an additional 6.5 million in debt. This is all happening just two years after the crazy year you heard them describe in the intro. Wow, what happened? Today, we're super lucky to have Aloysius Atta on the show. Aloysius is the founder and CEO of Farmerline. Farmerline is an agritech social enterprise that comes out of Ghana. It's been called the Amazon for farmers in Africa. Aloysius himself is no stranger to the spotlight. He's been an Equine Green Fellow, a Malago Foundation Fellow, a Bloomberg New Economy Catalyst, and a Forbes 30 Under 30. So yeah, it was a bit of a hassle getting him on this show. You're welcome. Today, Farmline has reached over a million farmers in 26 countries. Okay, great. But what exactly does it do? The answer to that question has evolved over the years. But one cross-cutting theme is that it has always strived to create value for smallholder farmers in Africa. It started out by providing essential information directly to the farmers about weather, market prices, farming tips, through text and then voice messages. From there, they realized they needed to include the agricultural extension workers and then provided tools to streamline and facilitate training, the provision of quality inputs like seed and fertilizer, and even financing. Finally, in 2020, Farmland made a strategic shift to take that platform across Africa, building an ecosystem of partners. Today, their platform, Merge Data, is a vertically integrated technology platform serving the agricultural value change. Everything from quality inputs, assets such as tractors and threshers, and connecting them to the market. It's worth noting, Farmerline isn't only a technology organization. They create connections with strategic partnerships. And in certain geographies, they also provide the physical, logistics, field agents, and farm resources needed to help smallholders succeed. All right, it's time to buckle up. In the hour ahead, we're going to cover the whole story. From the slow beginnings and dead ends of Aloysius's work in a dorm bedroom, to the early successes and growth within Ghana, and finally to March 2020, the make it or break it moment, when Aloysius realized, if you're going to work this hard, you might as well make some big bets, shoot for some big dreams, just to make the struggle worthwhile. But I'll let him tell the story. We start with Aloysius' upbringing in the fertile delta of the Volta River in Ghana. I'm from Ghana. I was born and I grew up and schooled in Ghana. I'm specifically from the Volta region, which is on the border of Ghana and Togo. My dad was a teacher. Um, my late dad was a teacher. My mom is a trader. And my auntie was a small-scale farmer. I stayed with her for the first 15 years of my life, right before high school. And during that time, that was when I got introduced into agriculture. My story is not different, though. Many uh, young Africans who grew up outside of the cities, Kumasi and Accra, would have something to do with farming. That was my story. So I'll go to school during the weekdays, uh, usually from 8 in the morning to like 4 or 5 p.m. in the evening, come back home, help with the house, house chores. And then on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, you go to the farm and support the family. What did she grow and how did she enlist your childhood self to help out? She was, uh, she was doing a uh, mixed cropping. So she was growing yam. She actually won the best farmer, yam farmer in our district. So she's a good farmer. She was a good farmer. Yeah. She was growing maize too. And, you know, anything basically to feed the family and to share the rice and maybe sell some. 
she put us along to the farm. I wasn't very enthused at the time. I remember I would go to the farm and I would, I would refuse to work and I would sleep. And, <laughs> and <I thought laughs> like, like many kids, like many kids, you just want to play with your friends. Exactly. You know, I, I didn't want to be on a farm. But yeah, that's a very experience <laughs> in my life. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's there's nothing quite like that that experience in your family, in your home yeah. as you're growing out. When you went to your further studies, when you went to university, was your thought that you would go into the agricultural space? Uh, no, at all. That was actually by, <laughs> by accident. Actually, this is a very interesting fact. Like, you know, I, uh-huh. I can speak for all farmers, but most farmers don't want their kids to end up in agriculture or farming. You know, like just because, oh, we, interesting. you know, we just not seen a lot of examples of people creating wealth or, you know, building a better life from farming. And that's true. Farmers want to create wealth. They just don't want to survive. They don't want to make money and then feed themselves and then wait, wait for the next cycle and then feed themselves. No, contrary to popular belief, they all have dreams of creating wealth. So my parents told me, like, you got to steady hard and leave this business behind and not be in farming. That was something that <laughs> was in that was instilled in me since uh, from my early days to date. How I ended up in agriculture was actually by asking. <laughs> my dad and my uncle actually selected my program for me because they thought when they saw I did renewable natural resources in college, but they didn't pay attention mm-hmm. to the renewable. They just saw, saw natural resources. And at the time, 2008, 2009, Ghana discovered oil. So when they saw natural resources, like, oh, hey, go study this course. You're going to work in the oil and gas industry. Huh. <laughs> and then, <laughs> what a misunderstanding. Yeah, you know, and in my huh. first lecture in college, I got my rude awakening when they were telling us the career prospects. And it was all related <laughs> to agriculture, forestry, agroforestry, science, you know, fishery. Uh, and it was then. You're like, that oh, man, I, what did I get myself into? Exactly. You know, I decided there and there that I didn't, you know, I had to do something else to give myself a better shot at life, to get a better job after school. So I started learning anything I could f- get my hands on. Like I was doing photography, video. I, I started learning how to code, you know, teaching myself and learning from my peers, my colleagues. Nice. So even from day one, you were in this program, you were adhering to what your family pressures and the market pressures were saying. So you're in this program, but you were already thinking, I want to do something different. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be in the sector, but I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. But it was more from a point of survival, right? Like, because, <laughs> you know, you want to finish school, get a job and also pay your dues, you know, take care of the family if you can and support your parents. So that's, that's, that's what it is. The, the sacrifice, the sanity school, you get a job and then you come back and then you support, like, you know, to push the family forward. So for me, it was about survival and it was about getting a job that pays well, that allows me to take care of myself and then also be there for my family and show up for them. Yeah. 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 And I can hear even in your voice, there's that responsibility that you have, you know, the family comes first, you got to support the family, you got to make ends meet. And that same ethos, that same sentiment is what makes it hard for a lot of people to start a new venture yeah. because there's so much risk in that early stage. Like it's very, like, like the culture isn't there yeah. the way that it is in, in other countries. Um, so what was it that gave you that push? How did you decide to set off on your own? It was just ignorance, man. Like I wasn't aware <laughs> of, of, of how difficult this is, right? Everybody like glorifies <laughs> what it means to start a business, right? We were talking about a good part. So I didn't know about <laughs> how, how hard it was going to be. That's a good answer. And then also I was, I, I was young enough to take a risk. Right. You know, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities at the time. If someone asked me if I was to start a company now, like it, it would be, you know, I would hesitate. Right. Because my responsibilities are just different now. Right. At that time, and you know what you're getting yourself into. Exactly. Right. You know, yeah, I know now. Like, you know, at that time when I when I finished college, here's my idea. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try this thing and see if it works out. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to use my failure story to write a good thesis and get into some master's program around the world. So whatever it is, it's going to be a win-win situation. And <laughs> Love that attitude. You know, and then, and then we started talking to our customers. We started speaking to the farmers. And all, all I could see mm. is family, my relatives, people I grew up with. And it became personal. Then we, be, we realized mm. that, first of all, this is not a joke. And second of all, for the population that we are targeting, you have to create value in order to capture value. You need to do good in order to be paid because this is a population that doesn't have a lot of money sitting down. 
So if you are trying to make money from farmers, you got to help farmers increase yield. You got to help them sell it. When they make money, then they pay you a fraction of what you help them capture, right? So just that's been our journey today. And that's something that we are still getting better at every day or creating value for farmers and getting paid for some of that value that we, that we create. And, and at the time, we didn't know what social enterprise was. I didn't even know what the word was. I didn't even understand. Uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know there was a whole community for you know, impact investors. It wasn't a thing. All we saw was what was happening in Kenya with Ushahidi and MPESA and all these things. And then here on the Facebook story, most young coders want to be that, right? But then when we started to realize that our market is not going to be like Facebook, we're not just going to build a tech and then go viral overnight. You have to create value. You have to understand agriculture, first of all. You have to connect with your audience. You have to earn trust. And you have to use that trust that you've earned to, to work with them. First of all, you have to listen to, right? Listen to them. Because most of the time, they have solutions to the problems that they are facing. And then work with them to find solutions that create change, that, that change behavior, that actually makes impact that lasts. That's one of the things I love about Farmer Line is your dedication to your your client. Uh, you want to help them make money through all the different means, and you you do it in so many different ways. And we'll get to that. But when you started, uh, you know, out of university, you're creating Farmer Line. What was the first thing that you tried? Oh, we started with technology. My partner and I, my co-founder, Emmanuel and uh, Emmanuel also are there. He was he had a similar story to me too. His mom had a clinic in a farming community and he spent his entire life seeing many women farmers coming to the clinic and not being able to afford basic healthcare, primary healthcare. That troubled him, right? So I met him when I got my first computer in 2009, uh, ever in my life with my student loan. And then I was learning how to code. His roommate was teaching me how to code. So I was going to his room to study. So then we became friends and then we co-founded this company together. So we approached the problem from a technology point of view. We spent six months building tech and we're building it on two theses that many, many people have mobile phones in Ghana. And if you send information to people, then they will use it and then they will take action, change behavior and then lead to impact. So we built like an SMS application because we assumed that SMS would work for everyone because we use SMS. So after six months of building, and I, we went to the field with him to speak to the agricultural extension officers employed by the government and started interacting with some farmers. We realized that SMS wouldn't work. So that showed us very quickly <laughs> the importance of talking to customers, first of all, right? You know, putting your ego aside, learning from your customers, understanding what is, like, you know, understanding what is happening, understanding the problem, understanding what works. And most of the time, taking what is working and, you know, making it more efficient, right? So we realized that people enjoy talking to, the, to each other. People only listen to extension officers because of, one, they speak the same language as them, and two, they trust them, and three, they know their house. So if you tell me to do something on my farm and it goes bad, I'm going to come to your house and say, hey, extension officer, you lied to me. <laughs> so there's that trust. So you can't just build technology, sit in Accra, and send a bunch of test messages to people and expect them to believe it, one, and then take action and change behavior and put their livelihood on the line, right? So... For us, we learned very quickly that the extension officer is still going to be a key part. Technology cannot replace that entirely, at least not now. We're still very far away from that. And then we, we, like, we started thinking about how can we magnify the impact of the extension officer. That's why we built, like, you know, we're one of the first companies to build, like, a voice platform to send messages to farmers in audio, right? So you can record an, an extension officer's message, conversation, and, and blast it out to thousands of, of farmers. They can get the message in their native language. They can hear the voice of the extension officer that they know and trust and have built relationships with. So by so doing, we are magnifying the impact of the extension officer. And then we are reducing the cost of they sending information to farmers, which is something that is complementing the existing system and making it more efficient, which was our trump card. That was a holy grail for us at the time. That helped us to like, you know, actually kickstart Farmer Line and gain some credibility. Right. And what I find so many things interesting about that journey and that arc that you took. First on the SMS side, in terms of SMSing market information to farmers. I remember in that period, maybe even a bit earlier in 2010, uh, the big success story of Agritech was around SMSing farmers, market information. So in, in Ghana, there's Isoko and they were sending out all this information. And that was actually a very 
a common uh, application in, in a very small space um, and one that had some studies to back it up. Like this will actually help farmers out. But what's interesting is the gap between research and actually what works on the ground. So you're talking there about interacting with the farmers and hearing, hey, I don't read <laughs> written twee. I don't understand this SMS. Like, how can we open up access? How can we make this accessible to people who might not be accessible through SMS? What was your first client or partner? What was your first deployment? Uh, our first, one of our first clients it was a MIDA. It was actually like a Canadian NGO that was working with about 20,000 soybean farmers uh, in northern Ghana. I remember running into the country manager, a mm-hmm. uh, country head at the time, Catherine, at, a, at an event in Tamale. And she gave us a shot. I still, when I think back, I'm like, I, I still didn't know what she saw, but I bet the woman <laughs> is a missionary. She gave us, uh, you know, like, you know, she's a visionary, right? She gave us a shot. Bless her. And we started partnering. She saw the energy in your eyes, Ex- I'm sure. Exactly, right? So give us a shot. And we got to this point by learning with partners like them, right? We brought we knew, what we did best, which was build technology that makes uh, things simple and more efficient. They they work with farmers. They have their underground game, like, you know, agent network training programs already built. So as we work to that, we learn from them. And a lot of, of their models actually influence what we do on the ground today in Ghana. Nice. What did you do for them? And did everything work? Perfectly smoothly the first time? Oh, no, we made a lot. Of so basically <laughs> learning about, so first we're sending like very long messages to farmers, right? So you send like too many, three many messages are too long to send. So learning like, you know, how long the message should be, 60 seconds and below actually works. Uh, Otherwise they, they drop off, they, they don't listen. They don't listen. The time of the message too. So you would like, if, if you're on the farm, you know, they often put their phone somewhere under a shed. So if you send a call during that time, you miss them. So early in the morning or late in the evening when they're back home, knowing the cycle of their, like, you know, religious activities as well, just learning up, learning how to combine messages that you send to their phone and also the workshops that actually happen. So if they are trained on financial literacy today, you want to send reminders to them 24 hours to 48 hours from now, instead of like sending them something that is random, like let's say on Ozabe's planning, like, you know, you have to coordinate like the messages that you're sending to their phone versus what is happening on the field in order to drive adoption. That, that's something that we've seen that has worked really well. And we learned that over time as we're working with them. Building the agent network too, right? And letting them know that this technology is not supposed to replace them and putting them at ease that is supposed to magnify your impact and help you to be more effective and efficient and reach a lot more people and actually reduce the stress that you face right now is something that was a very critical part that we have to learn, you know, with them as well. Yeah. And I really like your emphasis there on the agent network, on the agricultural extension workers or whatever you want to call them, uh, because there's something about that human interaction with somebody else from your community who can explain how to do things better. I think a lot of organizations miss that. They think, oh, technology will solve this. We'll send them a bunch of messages. They'll read them. They'll change their behavior. Was there any, any experience, any story that has guided your intuition around the fact that you know, extension workers and messaging needs to go hand in hand? Um, or is that is that just what you know from your experience in a farming community? Uh, yes, from experience. Actually, like we, I, I learned that heavily from some of the founders that we work with as well. So we, we work with like people like Mulago and other people who like, they hold us to really, really high standard on impact, right? Like, you know, they help us understand that if there's no change in behavior, there's no impact, right? So they, they, our funders and our shareholders, our supporters, our team, they keep asking us, how do you know you're making impact? We are the first investors we are the most important investors in intervention that we, are, that, that we are doing. We are spending our life to create impact. So we owe it to ourselves to know firsthand if, if we are making impact or not before you even report to any other shareholder or any external funder, right? So the question is like, if you're sending a bunch of messages, like messages to people, how do you know that it is driving the internet impact? How do you know that people are actually adopting what you're, what you're preaching and changing behavior towards impact and also profitability. And when we started like assessing our work, we actually did like some study, like, you know, a, a lean data study uh, by our impact team led, led by my colleague, Lily. We learned from the work that, you know, if you just send voice messages to people randomly, it doesn't actually drive adoption. You have to- <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. Like, yeah, you have to, <laughs> this random machine calls me and tells me things like, I'm not going to turn my whole farm around because of that. Exactly right. So it has to be combined with people. Right. And then if you do yeah. all people as well, it is highly impactful, but it doesn't drive 
it drives adoption, but it's not scalable and it's also very expensive. So, mm. like you know, a very like, in a very interesting combination of field work combined with training actually checks the three boxes, which is impact of your intervention, scalability, and cost effectiveness. And you need all those three boxes checked from our work, from our line of work, in order to like you know make lasting change. And absolutely, yeah, you know, combining those three actually helps versus just choosing one. Absolutely. I know there's a lot of critique out there for the impact investing space. You know, is it impact or is it investing? You know, why do you try to be both sides of that? But ultimately, what you're talking about is a great example of when impact investing works. Uh, Those organizations gave you funding in order to move forward your business model, but they also demanded, uh, not just asked, but demanded that you be accountable for the impact side. And that's how you now have this, this joint model that includes the extension workers as well as the remote messaging. And that's something that it's unclear whether other kinds of investment approaches could have had that kind of an outcome. So as FarmerLine has evolved, I know it provides a basket of different services, you know, to the actors that it serves. How did you navigate that decision, particularly in the early years of defining farmer line, you know, is it a, you know, cause you can imagine there's, there's lots of companies that do just messaging or just extension workers or just supply chain or just financing. How did you navigate the decision of, of when to grow what you were as an, as an offering um, and when to say no? The way we made decisions about what to add has been impact in line for our mission. Farmerline's mission is to create lasting profits for farmers everywhere. So then every day we're asking mm-hmm. ourselves, what else can we do to get closer to that mission? And then we also think about it from the view of sustainability, the impact that we are creating. Can we keep it going? Can it pay for itself? You know, so those two things, that's what we use every day to make a decision. So for instance, our work in Ghana, we stayed in one location with our field work, mm-hmm. direct field work up until 2019, right? Trying to figure out oh. how our field work was actually working. Like we need to figure out because, you know, when we, when we discovered technology alone couldn't do everything, we had to figure out a field like, you know, agent network and compensation and training that actually is scalable, delivers the impact that we want, and also cost effective. So we had to try many methods in the Ashanti region. Fascinating. Right. So we... Did- Wait, so you had, you had sort of a test site in Ashanti region in Ghana that you were experimenting with and innovating. What was that like? Tell me more about that test site. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like we're using the entire region where we experimented with, where we had like a, a team in the office that was just blasting our messages to the field and then receiving phone calls from farmers. And then we recruited agents that were working for us on commission. And then we had all our agents on payroll, full-time payroll. And then, and then now we have a mix of people on commission, people, people on payroll, and then backed by technology. So we needed to f- figure that one out before scaling, right? So it's easy to scale mm-hmm. very quickly. It's easy to be in every place and record huge numbers that we've sent 10 million messages and have served X million farmers. But then the question you have to ask yourself is how, how much impact are you making? And how sustainable is that impact? Mm-hmm. And for us, like it, it is very important for us to be sustainable because that's the reason behind FarmerLine. We believe that the business of food is very important and will make a lot of impact, but then it should pay for itself as well. Because many people are spending a lot of money uh, on food. Huge businesses are built around food. Small-scale farmers can participate and we can build some business like you know, principles into the matter of uh, agriculture and food. So it was very important for us to show that you can make impact, but then also create a business around it, right? So we stayed in, we, you know, we stayed in one place nice. uh, up until 2019 and 2020, we started scaling very quickly because we don't, you know, we've not learned everything, but we've, but we've learned enough to scale the impact that we are making and grow to serve a lot more farmers in Ghana. So for instance, last year, uh, we served about, uh, you know, 79,000 farmers directly with high quality fertilizer and seeds provide training for them, and then also connected a lot of them to market. So for others, like the full package, that actually gets us closer to our mission of creating profit, not just income, profit, meaning that they have to find ways to, you know, we have to help them find ways to reduce cost of farming, and we have to help them find ways to increase yield and then income through farming. And then what stays in their pocket is what matters, because it is that money that they use to go after their dreams, to put their kids to school and provide better health care, yes. you know, like all the farmers that we grew up with. So it was very important for us. 
Yes, exactly. And I've heard I've heard that particular model described as a as a scale and stabilize. You know, it's kind of like a, one of those lumpy slides yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that you that you go down where you you need to. There's sometimes the organization just focuses on on replication and expansion, and sometimes it focuses on changing its products, sort of refining what it is, making sure that it's uh, you have the the core flywheel in place uh, before you before you supercharge it and you put it everywhere that you can. And it goes, it goes in cycles. Uh, so up until 2019, it sounds like you were stabilizing, you're refining the product. And then from 2019, uh, you really hit the gas pedal in terms of your growth, yeah. uh, which is explains where you are now in your 25 countries with all the different, uh, all the different farmers that you've served. When you got to the point um, where you felt like, okay, we have, we have something good here. We have a product that's, that's gonna help farmers make money. How did you how did you hit the gas pedal on it? How did you go to market? What was your plan of attack? We started looking at like partnership, right? You know, you know, we are missionaries and not mercenaries. We wanted to, fi- we knew that we were not the only ones solving the problem of feeding the future. There are many organizations that care about that from development organizations that are well-equipped and well-resourced that care about the same mission. They are private people, they are government people. So we just look around who, is, who else is working towards this problem. And then how can we work with them? And how do we bring what we know best, which is technology, to build technology, to digitize the process, create, like, you know, gather intelligence and help make faster decisions to scale. So we've started working with some of the largest food companies in the world. We've worked with Hershey. We work with, Hershey, uh, we work with government, government of Ghana, government of Benin, using our technology. We work with large development organizations like Agra in Ghana. MIDA, the Canadian NGO. So we just looked around and started working with people and bringing the value that, like, you know, just bringing to the table what we know how to do best. And then we're learning from them too. So we've learned so much about how to develop content for farmers, how to build build your agent network. Working with those partners actually helped us to, like, you know, improve our model drastically because there are many things that they do really, really, really well that we've learned from. So we started looking around first. Our model is always partnership. We don't we don't envision Farmerline being everywhere in the world and having offices everywhere. But there, there are many organizations that are motivated and well-funded towards a similar mission, or if, if not the same. And we try to work with them, to partner with them. Outside of Ghana, outside of West Africa, we are purely a technology play. So we, we deploy our technology across all these 26 countries through partners, over 80 partners. We mm. provide support to them on how they can absorb and use our technology in their work. In Ghana, in West Africa, is, is the lab where we keep innovating by doing. So we build our, we build our own, own agent network. We support farmers directly. We buy their crops. We provide training for them. We distribute like, you know, thousands of bars of fertilizer to them. And through that, we learn, we innovate. We digitize, we build intelligence and everything that we built in Ghana, everything that we build in Ghana to support our mission, we license it through governments. We give it to large food companies and we give it to large NGOs who share the same mission. Uh, so that, that is a plan mm-hmm. of attack. Like it is only through partnership that we can increase our chance of feeding the future. It is not a winner take all, in my opinion. Mm, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You sure you don't want a farmland office in all the countries? Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, now let, let me let me unpack a little bit what you're talking about there. So on the one hand, you're talking about building a sustainable business that's going to create value and going to get value from that, um, and you're also you're also leveraging your your partnerships and the investment in order to in order to hit the expansion goals that you have. But the, so the core intervention that you have, is it a service for partners or are you going directly to the farmers? How does it actually work? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we do both. Or is it both? <laughs> I called it. <laughs> we do both, but in a structured way, right? Like for, for us, we like to think of ourselves as doctors, right? You can't tell someone what oh. to do. Or you can't advise them on new ways if you've not done it yourself. You can't just build technology. Your parents would be so proud. You know, You're a doctor. <laughs> oh yeah, you see, like this is a funny world. Yeah, somehow. You know, so, <laughs> so you can like we think that we can advise people on agriculture and using technology if we're not practicing it ourselves, right? So we built the technology and then we build our agent network in Ghana. We do the work too. We do the heavy lifting. You know, we source crops from farmers. We understand what it takes to move crops from one location to the other, right? 
but we know we can't be everywhere in the world to do that. And there are many organizations do the same thing. So instead of keeping all the knowledge and experiences and the technology and then the frameworks and, you know, the model with, our, with us, we we distribute that to third parties. We've shown that we can distribute our technology to partners to digitize a million farmers in the world, a million of them in the world. Wow. Now the next step is wow. everything that we are learning from connecting farmers to market, training farmers, distributing high quality fertilizer and seeds. Fertilizer and seeds might seem like old school, but they were invented hundred years ago. African farmers only use about 14 kilograms per hectare as compared to over 120 kilograms per hectare, uh, you know, Farmers in North America use one in 20 kilograms per hectare. Farmers in Africa use only one 14 kilograms. Really? Huge gap. I did not gap. know that. Exactly. So it's a huge yeah. gap. So, and it's, and it's all based on pricing. It's all based on cost of distribution. These are things that technology and other forms of intervention can, there's massive room to reduce cost of moving goods around, right? There's massive room for sourcing crops in large quantities and while maintaining quality. So our focus is let's keep churning out innovations with our partners on the ground in West Africa. And then whatever we've learned that seems to work really well, that could be applied to the rest of the world, distribute that to, through partners like government, large food companies, and also large NGOs. So that is the approach uh, that we use because farmers need these three things to create wealth. They need to get access to high quality fertilizer and seed. Even now more than ever with what is happening in, in Russia and Ukraine, now more than ever they need to access that when the price of fertilizer has tripled uh, today. They need access to high quality training in a format that helps them to change behavior. They need to sell in order to make money. These three things must happen at, at the same time in the year in order for them to increase their income and profit. So as we find new ways to help them get closer to that, we intend we intend to keep sharing them through our partners, building new partners, sharing it as uh, in, as we work towards reaching all farmers everywhere. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, basically, you provide the technology platform that is informed by the work that you're doing in Ghana, yeah. but it provides that holistic set yeah. of of services yeah. that the that the sector needs, you know, whether it be inputs, weather information, pest and disease control, disease control, or financial management, or a way to mobilize and work within your agricultural extension program. You're looking at the ecosystem, and you're providing a full stack yeah. solution for the agricultural workforce. Is that right? That's correct. Do you have any any moments that stick out in your mind? You know, reflecting on the past ten years. I don't know, we call them highest highs or lowest lows, like moments where you thought maybe you'd have to dissolve Farmer Line or, or turn it in a very different direction? COVID was a very hard one. Oh, yeah. It's a funny yeah. year. Like 2020 was a year that we, we grew three times. But right before then, it was the scariest thing ever because we were used to planning six months in advance, 12 months in advance. Every three months, my schedule <laughs> is planned. I know what I was going to be doing. But going through an entire year, not knowing what's going to come mm -hmm. next and planning day by day was really exhausting and was scary. When bad things happen or when you, for me, when I face adversity, like, you know, my reaction is to move forward with speed, to just take it on, right? Because if I'm experiencing mm -hmm. all this pain and challenges anyway, I must as well increase my chance of getting a higher return on investment. So for me, when things got really tough, I'm like, COVID is crazy. You must well go big or go home, right? So we, we started building a lot more partnerships in 2020 by working with many more agribusinesses than we did in the years prior. And we grew our business by 3x. It was the toughest year because we decided not to lay off anyone. And we also didn't hire. So the business grew so fast. And then the same staff size that managed the growth in 2019 managed the 3x growth in 2020. So it was a crazy year. We were all like really, really bent out. So that was like a very, very scary moment. And then that was also like, a big revelation for me personally that the work at the, at the end of the day is about, is about people. It's about customers. It's about your team members. It's about mm -hmm. shareholders. And at this job, you can't succeed at this job if you don't challenge yourself to be better every day as a leader. You have to learn to be better so because it, always you fail. Like you have to learn to manage yourself, lead yourself, manage your emotions, learn to compartmentalize because you have like very, very big highs and so many lows, so many lows. And learning to not bring that energy to the office or let it like overflow uh, in your interaction with other people is the hardest thing that I, ha I ever have to do. And then I learned from there on there that like, if you want to take your company to the next level, continue to make impact and, you know, you know build a big business, 
the biggest task is leading yourself and getting help, you know, learning new tools, getting mentors, coaches, and people that helps you to become a better leader. And the first person that you have to lead is yourself. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. What a story. Aloysius, you sound wise. In a way, as you speak, having you can, I can imagine you're you're in this position where there's so much fluctuation in the market, but you still need to be there for your team. You still need to be at the head. You still need to point the way forward, even though you have no idea how it's going to go. Yeah. Um, thankfully, it's all worked out, and I can imagine how it would play out um, during the pandemic. Uh, you you start off, you have you're in the space where you're you're focused on running your own. You know, you have your own agricultural extension workers, but they can't work anymore because of COVID and the uncertainties and everything else. But at the same time, because everyone is going virtual and everyone is limited in their travels, then the industry needs a technology solution. And you happen to be an agritech business. And so it's balancing those two changing curves at the same time, um, given that you are a hybrid organization and how that, how that uncertainty, how, how you're able to turn that into a win over the course of, of COVID. So it's, it's a fascinating ride. It kind of, it kind of makes my heart pump. <laughs> yeah. Just, just, like, um, a little just, thinking about it. just very thankful for the team that we built, right? Like the team that we built is really, it's really agile, right? They innovators, they are entrepreneurs. They're some, they are some of the smartest people that we've ever worked with. They, they show up every day with a problem solving mindset. They use like the three lenses that we use every day, are we going to make impact? Can we scale this approach? And it's going to be cost effective. And when things are not going well on the field, they will call them and say, hey, this approach that we agreed on, is not going to work. Here's what I suggest, right? So that made it easier. That made it easier. So like, you know, just a quick shout out to our team. We wouldn't be here. We would not be here if not for the team that we have. Uh, people who care, care deeply about the work and are willing to go to war, are willing to give everything until we deliver impact and capture value. I love that, Aloysius. Um, one last question before we switch over to the rapid fire segments. Um, but one last question for you is, having worked with all the different actors in, in this space, you know, to some extent, Farmer Line is a digital marketplace yeah. for the different actors in the agricultural supply chain. What are, do you have any observations about how that market is broken? Um, are there aspects of what happens now? Like, you know, maybe it's for regulatory or policy or historical or colonial reasons, but do you have any observations about like how you wish this market worked differently than it does now? I think I, I wish that it got, the, the market collaborated more on building an infrastructure. And in our opinion, mm. that infrastructure is more than digital, right? So Hmm. My cost of transportation is going to go up, which will then affect pricing if fuel prices are going up. If the road network is bad, the car spends, you know, 10 hours instead of three hours on the road. It's still, it's still going to increase the cost of farming, right? So we can innovate and build all the technology, the AI solutions. But if the physical infrastructure is also not built, and if we don't coordinate, the industry doesn't coordinate, we'll not go anywhere. Look at what the finance sector has done with the social security. Uh, with, with FICO score. Mm. Imagine if everyone has to build their own FICO score in order to extend credit. Imagine if, if every financial institution has to build their own social security system in order to extend credit oh. or do business with their own financial, uh, their own customers. Will not be, they will not it be where happen. they are today. Right? The, the agricultural sector needs this. Why? Because we all need to eat. There's going to be a lot more of us on the planet. There have been more than 9 billion of us on the planet. We have to figure a way to turn this thing around. One of the ways is to collaborate on infrastructure, both digital and physical, right? So private sector, NGOs, social enterprises, we have to find a way to turn this thing around fast and stop working in silos because we all, we all went through the same thing. We can learn a lot from the, you know, financial sector. We can learn a lot from other distribution sectors, right? Like, you know, we can learn distribution from Coca-Cola uh, on how they built a business around that. We can learn it from Indomin on how they built a billion dollar revenue business a day by building micro entrepreneurs to distribute their goods. The same for Coca-Cola, the same for the mobile network. You know, there's just so much to learn from other sectors. In the agriculture sector, we have to stop, uh, you know, thinking technology and AI and all this are going to solve everything. <laughs> and then do the hard work, which is collaborating on the entire infrastructure that makes it easy and cheaper to move things from one from the city to the rural areas and from the rural areas to the city and knowing the people that we are working with, sharing, creating a shared resource. I think, I think it's time for that now, now than later. Yeah. 
Can you give an example of digital infrastructure that would make organizations like FarmerLine more successful? The first thing is just, you know, knowing the people that you're working with, like, you know, they're like both the agribusiness and farmers, a national agribusiness database that, so if I want to, if, if, if an agribusiness comes to me and say, hey, FarmerLine, I need help to buy tractor, right? Mm-hmm. I should be able to see this agribusiness. First of all, are they who they are? There has to be something that is easy and cheap that I, I can just plug in into. Are they who they say they are? Have they worked with any other person? Did they take a loan from another bank? Did they take a tractor loan from another agribusiness? And they're just coming to me because they all work in silo and they know that we are all not connected so they can play us. The same for farmers too, like, you know, identity, having like a, an economic profile, a, a risk profile on every partner in agriculture space, not just the technology. Mm-hmm. But intelligence is reliable. I've seen many projects, they've all built the technology, they made it open source. But then after the project ends, nobody's actually contributing data and then it dies. Millions of dollars down the So true. Right? So, so true. It's about collaborating so that like that intelligence is actually reliable. Just like how when you, when you, when you ping FICO to find a FICO score of someone, you're not wondering if that intelligence is true or not. You know it's true. <laughs> because they build a system that ensures that that, that, that platform is actually true. It's all connected. You can't run away from it. We need that. We need that too. Uh, we need we need the right policies too. The right the right policies that are towards reducing the cost of farming, reduce the cost of fertilizer, and increasing adoption. Working with the private sector, both the pri- private, public, and uh, you know sector working together towards a common a common cause. So all these things are very important. We are working towards as an organization, but we can't be everywhere, and we can't solve it by ourselves. We can build all the tech that we want, but you know, collaboration, um, sharing data, creating a trust framework that allows people to share data without revealing too much about their business or we can all just like ping that system and help us focus on the main things, which is providing all the training and information to farmers so they can absorb it and change behavior, providing high quality fertilizer and seeds, competing on quality and price, connecting farmers to market and giving them more options and choices is something that we have to work on. And Farmer Line is working really hard towards that, but we need more people to join us. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Aloysius. So next, we're going to dive into the rapid fire segment, which closes out our interviews. First question for you, Aloysius, is if you have any asks, feedback for donors or investors who fund agritech enterprises. Yeah, for feedback, yeah, like I think they should, they should continue holding us to higher standards of impact. Because in, from the work that we've seen, you can't build a sustainable business if you don't if you don't create value for farmers and agribusinesses, right? So if we're all just fighting over the same pie, then you know we're just going to keep fighting over the same pie. But if you're going to if you're trying to build a mm. big business and make uh, like you know large scale impact, then we should keep holding us accountable towards impact. Because if the farmers don't increase yield, they don't grow more crops. Uh, then you can buy more crops and then make more money from from buying and selling crops. And then also, if you are making investments on a continent uh, and then you're investing in ag and then you maybe you don't have the in-house help on how agriculture actually works on the continent, how Arctic works, the mistakes that we've made, lessons that we've learned, like just get help. Get someone who, who knows that because I've seen like it's easy to fund anyone or anything with a website, good impact story, good videos. <laughs> uh, it's good. Like, you know, and I'm not trying to criticize anyone, but like <clears throat> there's so much work being done in the sector and it's good for donors to, uh, funders to align in general to just make sure that they are not funding things that actually drags the ecosystem back, right? So for instance, if let's say I'm, we are working in Northern Ghana to create a business and a donor comes in to just make everything that we are trying to create a business around for free. It just takes everyone back. And, and that donor is not going to be available oh. to keep making the thing for free forever. Then we are, we are basically taking us back five to 10 years. So basically just doing the yes. groundwork and just like, you know, doing more due diligence because it's easy, especially when yes. it comes to donations, it's easy to get around, write a good proposal, pretend everything is bad and write all these sad stories and get people to fund it. And then you only see it in the news. We've raised X million dollars in grants and everything. And then we are back to square one. So mm-hmm. basically funding things that actually drive the ecosystem forward versus funding things that like, you know, in, that actually drag, drag, like drag us back. So getting help really works. You know, this, this is a very difficult thing to say because uh, people might think you're being cocky or arrogant. But like if you work in a sector where you work so hard to move things forward, only to see it being on, like, you know, being destroyed, in quote, it can be frustrating. So just collaboration and holding all of us, including Farmer Line, to higher standards of impact. Uh, if we say we did something, let's show the evidence. 
that we've gathered internally and then occasionally evidence that we've allowed a third party to gather to back the claims of income increase and, you know, behavior change that we're like, you know, that's something that Mulago like hold us to really highly and t- teaches us about. And we, we just hope that this can be uh, done by all funders. Aloysius, you've really hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I really think we need a, a third party to hold donors accountable for when they mess up or destroy the agricultural market that needs to exist. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm sure donors are always destroying the market that you are serving and you will serve long-term. Um, so I really, I think that's a very powerful message, Eloges. Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Our customers, you know, so shout out to our customers, agribusinesses, partners that we worked with, nice. farmers that we worked nice. with, our team. I feel like my team, our team gave us, gave me so much opportunity to grow as a person. And I'm just very thankful to that for that because I wouldn't be who I am without this job, right? So the job helped me to be a better person, first of all, to keep improving every day. So shout out to all of them for putting up with me uh, and still staying in my corner, <laughs> right? So thanks to them. Yeah, and <laughs> shout out to all the, the funders that have, that have been in our corner from day one, even when we didn't know anything. And we, <laughs> we are still learning, right, every day. So shout out to all of them. And, you know, shout out to family, you know, for being in my corner and loving me through it all. Yeah, that's beautiful. Last from the rapid fire is just for fun. If you could recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've enjoyed, just for kicks. Super Soul Sunday by Oprah. Oh, nice. I really like that podcast. <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, yeah. The podcast is really good. He's got so much heart. Yeah, it's about life, you know, hearing from other people's life hacks, how they stay on top of their games and how they take care of themselves. Like, you know, there's a spiritual connotation to that. So I enjoy, I enjoy listening to that. Nice. So now we're going to switch over to some questions from our listeners. Uh, the first is from Caitlin Kraft Butchman from Woman at the Table. She asks, how do you proactively reach out to female smallholder farmers? What is your gender and inclusion? What does your gender strategy look like? Yeah, so the way we reach women, uh, two main ways. Uh, choose a workforce or field agent network that can easily reach more women, but then also support crops that are being grown by more women, right? So, and then thirdly, go to locations that women are like more, like there are more women mm-hmm. farmers. So for us, when we're in only one region and working in Coco, uh, we, our breakdown was about in the 26% or 27% women farmers. When we started working with a lot of food crops, like cereals and grains, uh, like sorghum, uh, soybean and maize. Mm-hmm. And then when we expanded to the Northern part of the country where there are a lot of women farmers growing more food crops, we, we, that number changed to 54% because we're like, you know, you know, we started supporting a lot more crops that are grown by women. That makes sense. Land tenure system tend to uh, favor men and tree crops also favor men. So when you support more food crops, then, you know, you know, you get to reach more women. So that's what we did. We started also being intentional about the agent network that we recruit to make sure there are a lot more women as well organizing women-only workshops as well. Because if it's mixed, Mm -hmm. most of the time, women show up early. (laughs) uh, But then when the men start arriving, they will move to the back and then remain silent. So if you want them to open Mm. up, then you have to do more women workshops led by women. So those are some of the things that we've done. I would admit there's a lot of room for improvement. We are not there yet. And it's even more important for us to reach a lot more women because... A lot of the pro, like crops that we are growing, like you know, we are supporting right now, are food crops, and we just have to keep improving on our strategies to reach our like you know our best customers that are women. Lovely, Caitlin's, Caitlin has a second question. Caitlin's second question is: How is artificial intelligence AI being used, or how could it be used more effectively in your work? Yeah, it's about inte- like it is being used for intelligence gathering. Intelligence one know the impact of your work and to reduce like plan better to reduce costs and uh, make impact. So, for instance, we're using AI to profile agribusinesses, right? So, if when agribusiness come for to us to demand to request for fertilizer and seed, we do like a score for them, like a FICO score for agribusinesses. That then allows us to determine how much fertilizer to give them and then the payment terms to give them. Whether we should uh, charge them fifty percent upfront. And then they pay 50% uh, in two to four weeks or 30% upfront and then the 70% in six six to nine, uh, 
nine months, right? So AI is helping us on, on in that regard. Um, route planning, so planning where to the routes to take to deliver our, our products to the rural areas uh, in order to reduce the cost of transportation. Delivery schedule, so we use AI to plan our delivery to make sure that we prioritize customers first come first serve and not just like, you know, and, and taking out any human bias to improve customer loyalty. So when people know that like this is being determined by a computer instead of humans, they, they trust that it is more fair and, and there's no bias, like, you know, there's less bias in it. Yeah. And also yield prediction, knowing where, where food is going to be right in the middle of the season and how much that food is going to cost uh, and then the quantity that's going to be available allows us to determine how much investment to put in in each location. So then the application is uh, limit, like is is a lot. But at the end of the day, all this intelligence have to only work when you collect good data and good data is collected uh, by people and people are agreeing to digitize their processes. So that's the first step of uh, working with your field agents, explain to them why they have to digitize, not as a target, but then like, you know, just as a byproduct of their work, doing their work and leveraging that digitized data to teach your AI and generate better intelligence to support your work. So that's how we use it today. Of course, there's, there's room for improvement. And, and let me use a quick way to say that we are, you know, we are recruiting a CTO. So if you're listening to this and you work oh. at anywhere in the world, you want Good to know. Impact, you want to join us, uh, CTO, CFO, Chief of People, uh, please send me an email at aloysius at farmaline.co. Awesome. Thank you, Aloysius. Last question uh, from Strange Attractor on Twitter. Can farmers in North America benefit from your products and services, you know, for organic farming or for organic certification or other use cases? Yeah, yeah, they can use our technology. You know, we, we are not providing any form of financing and on the ground support in North America. But yeah, I would imagine that our technology will be helpful for digitizing farms, you know, profiling farmers, tracking purchase of fertilizer and seeds, tracking the harvesting of food and all that. Yeah, so we, we can definitely discuss that and explore synergies. We've not worked in West, uh, you know, North America yet. We've worked in uh, in Peru, in Asia in Africa mostly, but yeah, we are open to having conversations about North America. Thank you so much for your time, Aloysius, and for sharing so much wisdom that you've accumulated over the years. We really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Did you catch that part where Aloysius said he's looking for a chief technology officer? With the investment they've now raised, they're expanding and they need some help. If you're looking to have an impact, you can check out all their open jobs on their website at farmerline.co. And feel free to mention you heard about them on Aid Evolved. You can download a full transcript of this interview at aidevolved.com. We'll see you in two weeks.